Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Christophe Fougere, who is a professor of finance at the Kedge Business School in France. He's the co-inventor of the Required Yield Theory, RYT, a financial theory that provides more robust insights into the valuation of broad market indexes, such as S&P 500 and gold. Uh, he has published articles in leading American academic, academic journals, such as Journal of Portfolio Management, and financial markets, institutions, and instruments. Welcome, Chris. Thank you, Gail. Thank you for uh, this opportunity. Absolutely. So uh, I want to start with one of your recent um, recent articles, um, and it's entitled Making Sense of Asset Prices, A Guide to the Required Yield Theory. Uh, and you say uh, the bad news is that there is widespread confusion about how asset prices are determined. Uh, and the good news is that uh, required yield theory aims at establishing a clear understanding of the underlying mechanisms behind asset prices. Before we get to RYT, um, I want to look at the confusion you're talking about. So you say in the article, where do I begin? There is so much confusion out there amongst academics practitioners and the investing community regarding how to value stocks and other asset classes such as treasuries, gold, and real estate, that seems quite tragic, tragic, bordering on comedic. And mm. I have to say, I could not agree with you uh, more, Chris, on that. You know, when I think about the financial services industry, uh, which is very large, as you know, in the U.S., um, they don't seem to really engage in an evaluation that their clients can actually see. Uh, yeah. Financial advisors sometimes claim they pick stocks for clients. Uh, but cross-sectionally, if you look at the data, such stock picking abilities have been shown to be value destroying, if at all. Mm -hmm. uh, financial intermediaries, such as investment banks, value assets by, they say, assessing market interest. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, the interest here is more how to get a share through uh, through spreadsheet magic from the from the innovator, uh, and the more sophisticated quote unquote uh, financial services um, uh, services industries such as private equity firms or venture capital firms, uh, who yeah. who clearly have a need to value assets, uh, also don't show any clear alpha uh, from any of these activities that they do. So. Yeah. So, 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 what do you mean by this confusion that is that appears prevalent, or you know, in the industry as well as in academics? Yes, I think there is the um, fundamentally. I think uh, people who work in the industry they wear this badge of expertise, right? You know, you yep. go to see a doctor, and they have this uh, nice uh, diploma on the wall, and you you say. Well, I, I defer to your advice because you're the expert. And I think there is some sort of that lure uh, when, uh, you know, novice people, uh, you know, investors that are uh, 
pretty uh, naive about the market and they're looking for guidance. Um, yeah. You know, they they go to these uh, to these people. Uh, they could be uh, brokers, investment you know investment bankers. They could be uh, uh, hedge funds, uh, whatever. Uh, and uh, they they expect. I mean, they they really uh, they really believe that uh, these ha these people have a, a uh, valuable knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, that can help them uh, essentially uh, manage their money and uh, get a decent return and, uh, you know, uh, moderate, moderate amount of risk. But uh, th that's really, truly, I, I believe that, that that's what they that's what most people think. Yeah. Um, and so what happens is, um, I mean, I, I remember in particular one particular asset manager who is very famous i'm not going to cite his name uh and yeah, yeah. he is a, a, a chicago uh, school of business a phd uh mm -hmm. and he uh during the um i believe it was the um the dot-com crash I, I yeah he yeah. um you know his fund was performing very poorly and mm -hmm. what he essentially was able to do is to say to uh to his clients, uh, we're going to do a lot of risk management, and we're going to manage we're going to manage the losses to minimize the losses as much as possible. And in effect, uh, he was telling them also, um, where else are you going to go? You know, right. uh, you, you should trust me. I'm I'm going to I'm I'm going to uh, make the best of this situation. Yeah. And uh, but but. Uh, if you go anywhere else, you're not going to be better off. Essentially, it was right. saying that there were they were all in the same boat. Uh, nobody had had a particular edge on uh, on uh, on understanding, not even making that claim, but on 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 uh, uh, really finding a way out of this situation better than him. So yes. essentially, he had like a captive audience, right. uh, and 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 then people. It's it's a big. In a essence, it's a strong word, but it's also like a, a confidence game, you know, yes, in, in a way. Yeah, yeah. you mentioned, uh, Chris, you know, which I, I see all the time that well, financial advisors, for example, would say, um, yeah, this is a long term investment. Right. So, yeah. you, you know, uh, you have been with me uh, uh, for yeah. some time and you have to stick with me for a long time for me to actually uh, actually help you. Um, and you have to trust, like you say, you have to trust my judgment. Yeah. I have been doing it for a long time. Uh, and and so I know, you know, uh, I, so in this, the COVID situation is a good example, Chris. I want to get yeah. your perspective on this. The, yeah. the typical financial advisors um, have advised their clients that the markets are going to crash. Yeah. And either they went into a very conservative allocation, yeah. And unfortunately, the uh, the, the day traders uh, there's 15 million of them in the U.S. And uh, with joblessness uh, increasing, we added another 15 million. So we have 30 million kids playing video games with uh, <laughs> with, with the stock market. Yeah. And uh, it has come back. So so what I heard some financial advisors say is that. Um, you know, a, a rise in the stock market like this is not sustainable. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we have to just stick with, you know, what we what we thought uh, maybe six months ago. Um, and and at some point, market will crash again and yeah. we will be in a good position then, you know, to to get into the market. Yeah, we, we can talk about the COVID situation because I, f I find it fascinating. I think it's uh, uh, there is a strong parallel not in terms of the narrative necessarily but with uh, 1929 I, I i that's my strong conviction is that we're headed to uh, a major market meltdown and one of the uh, you know i discussed this with some of my colleagues quite uh, often in the last uh, couple of months but there is something very intriguing about the month of october yeah <laughs> uh, Right. Most crashes, right? Uh, major crashes have happened in October, like the '87 crash. Uh, 
the uh, you know October 1929. Uh, I mean, uh, there is something about the month of October, and if um, you know, in the context of uh, okay, in the context of how IT required theories valuation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there is just no way the valuations that are actually uh, occurring right now are any anywhere realistic. I mean, you can't you can't justify the, the market price at this time. I mean, it's impossible to justify it. Explain uh, uh, explain RYT a bit then, uh, Chris. Um, so, what's the formulation of right. RYT? So RYT essentially, uh, just to give you a little, uh, I mean, I'll start with a little bit of the history of the theory. Yeah. Um, um, you know, my co-author Julian Van Erlach uh, was a businessman, but very data-driven um, man. So in his business, yeah. and he was uh, in logistics and he, he had a keen interest in financial data and he was keeping uh, huge amounts of data uh, personally, and he was really uh, testing uh, his own intuition on that. And he came to me, uh, just gave me a call one time when I was at Alb Albany, and he said, uh, "I really, I have this, um, I have this explanation of how the market behaves, and um, and, and it, it is based on this notion that uh, uh, investors at large want to obtain a minimum uh, return." Uh, uh, of two percent, real after tax. Okay, and I was yeah. like, I've never heard that before, but I'd be <laughs> really interested in seeing what you have. And so he came and he showed me his uh, his data. He showed me, uh, uh, you know, his his calculations, and yeah. I was very taken aback by what I saw, and I was very impressed by the the due diligence, the level of detail. Uh, however. You know, he he didn't have all the pieces together in terms of how to um, to link up his intuition with what we understand in finance. You know, he didn't yeah. really have the background and the the knowledge, and so essentially it was up to me to kind of uh, build this into a uh, a solid uh, with solid theoretical foundations. So the idea is is really simple. Uh, the idea is that um, if you think about think about a market as being a corporation, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, and think about a uh, somebody wanting to buy a share of that uh, of that market. Now, what are they entitled to? They're entitled to earnings, right? So they're entitled right. to think about uh, in the really simple simplest sense, uh, all profits belong to the shareholders. So uh, essentially what we're able to show is what we're able to show is that um, um, the earnings yield, essentially the, the inverse of the P ratio is kind of like a, an expected return, okay? So we're kind of demonstrating this. It takes a, a little bit of while. But, uh, and, and what we're showing is that uh, if you're uh, competing to buy that asset, you're gonna beat up the price of the, of the market yeah. to a point where you're going to get, you're going to say, okay, I'm not going to bid it more than this particular value because then my return is not going to be enough for me, right? right. So there is a floor right. that you're willing to go to to bid up the price. And we're saying that essentially at the market level, this is happening, but this is also happening for individual investors. That is the price is determined by the highest bidder. And the highest bidder yeah. is the person who's willing to accept that minimum return, but no less yeah. than that. And why no less than that? Because it is what the economy can produce as productivity. So we link this up to the productivity, the economic productivity. We're saying, for instance, 2%, right? Yeah. is long-term productivity. And we're saying that essentially your wealth can grow at a maximum of 2% in the long term because that's what economic growth and that's what the rate of growth of corporate profits are in the economy. And we on, link on, up- On, real, on yeah. real terms, right? On real terms, yes. Yeah. On the per capita real term basis, yeah. Right, right. So we're, we're actually linked, linking up this to, uh, and we're saying this is, the, this is really kind of the, 
the return that everybody is essentially uh, cornered into because the, the person who bids and wins uh, and de defines the price is the highest bidder. And yeah. everybody's locked to uh, getting that return. And the reason that it actually is that way is also because capital gains in the long term, you know, the, the, the rate of capital gains is determined by the growth of, of, of corporate profits, which is also in real terms uh, uh, after inflation uh, and uh, uh, that, that, that term. So we, we do a lot of, uh, uh, we talk about dividend policy and what, what it is. I mean, it got us into areas where we had to uh, say, well, why isn't it that people can earn more? Uh, what explains then the equity premium? You know, what if this is if this is two percent that determines the return on equity? Well, where's the equity premium? And we 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 were essentially able to um, uh, to tie up all the loose ends. I mean, this took yeah. uh, this took us about seven years to do that. But uh, uh, and essentially, what we what we find is that the equity premium is not something that gets added to the return on bonds, on, on right. riskless bonds, but that is essentially something that is subtracted from the return on stocks to get to the return on safe bonds as an insurance premium. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so let, yeah. me, let me understand yeah. the 2% a little bit yeah. more, Chris. Yeah. So what, what you're saying is that in the broad market, yeah. Um, we can expect corporate profits to grow at approximately 2% on real terms in yeah. the long run. Correct. Right? Yeah. Um, I had a bit of a difficulty, you know, thinking about GDP per capita. You also argue that GDP per capita, we should see around 2% growth uh, only because GDP is a very imperfect measure, right, of mm -hmm. economic activity, mm -hmm. right? It, it just, uh, perhaps, even though it's very imperfect, what you might be arguing is that it proxies uh, corporate profits yeah. at, the, at the very high level. So you don't have to worry about all the mechanics underneath that, but, you know, you can, you can just observe that the, at the very macro level, that's what you can expect to see. I think that's the I, I think that's the right argument, uh, and um, the, the people you know people wonder also you know why are you saying uh, why long term why not GDP short term, and we're saying that actually GDP short term is uh, linked to uh, 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 the equity premium like the the gap in growth between short term GDP and long term GDP determines yeah. periods of recessions and, you know, and uh, expansions because you have accelerations, right. decelerations. And we link up these cycles, which, which we call business, we, we call it essentially a business cycle premium. And yeah. uh, so we were able to tie that with, uh, uh, with, with the equity premium. But essentially oh. what the surprise was, uh, uh, was that if we try to match if we say, okay, the, the, the return that the investors want match, let's say, short-term GDP growth, that there's just completely, there's complete disconnect. Actually, research has shown that there's, there's not a tight connection between uh, stock returns and, and GDP growth in the short term. But when yeah. we have this idea of essentially competing investors, short-term and long-term investors for the same asset, right? Yeah. Then there is a minimum that they both want, and that is the long-term uh, uh, trend. They they want they won't want to sacrifice lower than that. They won't want to get lower than that, except if they want to insure. Like for instance, uh, uh, if they want to trade, let's say at the short-term horizon. Yeah. And they are saying to themselves, okay. I really don't want to have any risk and I'm going to go into safe bonds. And then I'm willing to sacrifice some return, essentially paying a premium. And I'm going to get a little bit less than 2%, but that's the only time that I want to do that is because I have a, some sort of uh, 
cash flow situation where I, I don't want to be in for the long term. I'm doing this. I have some sort of constraint and I, yeah. I'm looking for insurance. But beyond outside of that, uh, the, the market, the big surprise was the market point to point is priced with this idea of 2%. That was a big surprise. Yeah. That is, yeah, I mean, it is, it is surprising and it's very elegant and it's, it's really simple, yeah. right, in some sense. So, so this, is, uh, this is in the absence of some kind of technology discontinuity. Uh, yes. Right. So you're assuming yeah. productivity is is really on a smooth, uh, stable position. Very good point. In fact, uh, I, I would say, OK, one of the things that we uh, we say, and I'm just going to backtrack a little bit to uh, when you were talking about uh, what we don't un in finance, why don't we understand uh, valuation? Is because yeah. I my my analogy is this, we're we're uh, on shift, shifty sands. There's no solid base. Everything seems like it's moving. Like we're not sure that it's, you know, that stocks are the the present value of future expected uh, cash flows. We're not sure about the discount rate. We're not sure about where those expected cash flows are. Everything is shifting, and, and we don't have an anchor. So what we yeah. what we said is we we said okay, that two percent looks like a really solid anchor, and we're gonna trust it. We're gonna test it, mm -hmm. finding yeah. that actually empirically works very well. And then we're gonna learn from the model. We're gonna say okay, the times when there is a gap between the actual price market price and our valuation, what can be? How can we explain this? And this mm -hmm. led to really some interesting insights. For instance. Uh, the effect of quantitative easing. Yeah. Now the it's a it's a huge market distortion on bond prices and returns. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's such a distortion that when we uh, when we correct for that distortion, and we have some research uh, researchers, I think they were Fed researchers estimating kind of the you know, the gap between what, where the yields should be compared to where they are with quantitative easing. And I use some of those estimates, but when you correct for that, then the valuation yeah. gets back on track, which is very interesting. Yeah, so explain that a little bit, uh, Chris. So, so what is the goal of the quantitative easing? It's to push long-term rates down? <laughs> Correct. Correct. But okay. what they're forgetting in the um, uh, what they're forgetting, the Fed is forgetting this, and I wrote a little piece on that a long time ago, is that uh, people can do that on their own if they are fearful. So if you're right. if you're fearful, you're gonna go, you're gonna fly to safety, or you're gonna fly to uh, uh, safety long term, or you're gonna fly to cash short term, right? You, you can have both types of, of situations. But if you go long-term yeah. and you buy long-term treasury bonds, then you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna bring the yields down. And, right. and that's going to happen naturally because of that, uh, the market sentiment and the, the fact that the, the, the people are saying, you know, we're willing to take a hit uh, just to, to get us into safety, right? And right. when the Fed is doing quantitative easing and bidding up the prices, it could be a situation where they are bidding up the prices too high for people to be able to purchase those assets in a way that protects them with the level of safety that they are searching, which would be a, a, you know, driven by uh, supply and demand, right? So you, right, right. you have so, a huge so distortion argue, in, in the access yeah. to safe instruments when, when you do quantitative easing. Right, right. But more broadly, would you argue, Chris, that uh, passive monetary policy is, is more optimum? So can you repeat the question? Yeah, so, so you would then prefer more of a passive Fed, yeah. right? Yes, 
in gen in general, not just well, quantitative, quantitative easing, but no. Yes, I, I would say okay. So, so, so it's just a pure pure researcher question. I mean, when you have people like uh, Milton Friedman and you know, I mean, the Chicago School who uh, they're preaching, you know, free markets, and uh, that's an ideological uh, position, and yeah. uh, that's a political position. Uh, mm -hmm. I, from a researcher standpoint, what I'm noticing is I'm noticing that if the markets were free to act, then <laughs> essentially the theory would work. See right. what I mean? Okay. So it is not a, uh, I'm not making a, a, a normative um, political statement there in terms of what markets should market be free or regulated or should there be intervention from the central banks or not? I'm not making any statement about that. I'm making a statement yep. that I'm noticing that when they do, there's so much distortion right. that it just throws a curveball into the whole thing and that people get even more lost because they don't even, there's even more moving pieces and they don't know what to do with them. So, and yeah. yeah, so 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 you you um, I think you mentioned um, something like a fear premium, correct? Uh, and and so so if I understand this correctly, Chris, are you saying that sometimes Fed actions uh, could actually create fear in the market, and and that 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 could be sort of self-sustaining and feeding each other. Well, yeah, I mean, not quite, not quite that. But um, yeah. uh, essentially, what I'm saying is that the uh, there could be fear in the market, which could be priced by the market, and the Fed by doing quantitative easing is introducing a, a, a skew in that pricing, and essentially um, leads investors to actually say, you know, wh where else can I go if? Uh, I'm trying to buy those uh, long-term bonds and they're too pricey. Uh, what other asset classes? So it introduces a distortion in the, uh, the, the search for hedging. Yeah, yeah. And, okay. and, and that's okay. not intentional. And I don't think the Fed has even talked about that, you know, which is really kind of scary that they're forgetting this whole idea of that they're preventing uh, hedging because they're yeah. they're they're hiking the prices. Yeah. So so I want to connect the two percent uh, again yeah. to to treasury yields and understand that a little better. Yeah. But I want to also uh, so so the other kind of underlying assumption there is that the present value growth opportunities that firms have is mean rewarding. So it's not really. Uh, it's not going to be there, right, you know, on a kind of a systematic way. Yeah. And we have already removed any kind of probability for a te technology discontinuity. If that happens, all bets are off, right? Correct. And in um, fact, yes. And to, to get back to that point, this is a very crucial yeah. point. Uh, and what I wanted to say is that we're, since we're taking this as an anchor, we're, we're essentially, we'll say, we're true believers. We're going to say the model is true. And then we're going to make yeah. the adjustments. We're going to learn from the model by benchmarking it against reality, looking for the gaps and trying to explain the gaps. And what you said is very crucial because um, uh, recently, uh, in the last three, four years, uh, I've been running this model. You know, I've, I've been testing this model with my students uh, year after year after year. And everything works great. Make the adjustment for quantitative easing works great. Uh, the tax rates are not ideally, but uh, I don't. I don't have. You know, there's the whole issue of uh, getting access to the proper data and having. Uh, um, I would say um, statistical institutes all over, all around the world. Uh, there there should be a, a mandatory list of things that they should be covering. And I think marginal yeah. tax rates are there should be mandatory as 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 macro data, but it's not uh, in most countries. Anyways, um, yeah. the point the point that you're making is great because 
like I'm starting noticing that the gap between actual valuation, actual price, and and the model was widening in the last few years. And I was like, I'm I'm trying to make some adjustments. I'm, I don't understand why it's not working. Uh, oh, and then I read these papers uh, recently. I, I found these papers where um, this is, um, I think, European Central Bank. A uh, couple of papers uh, by central bank uh, uh, economists. They're, they're saying there's a slowdown in long-term growth. So when you talk mm-hmm. about a technological shift, it could happen both ways, right? There could be a slowdown and acceleration, right? And they are estimating yeah. long-term now, long-term growth to be not 2% anymore, but 1.3%. This is after 2015, right? Yeah, so I don't know if it's related, Chris. Yeah. Um, I had a podcast um, uh, uh, last month, and it was really looking at, you know, sort of a, a dissection of Tobin's cube and, and trying to understand why firms uh, are not really investing to grow their asset base. And and one of the hypotheses uh, that came from there is that uh, the world population growth yeah. is slowing. Mm. Right. Mm. And if that is, uh, we know it's slowing. And if it is going to slow more, Mm -hmm. uh, some countries are already into negative. Most of Europe uh, could be going into negative. Mm. Japan is already in a negative growth target. So Mm. this is not something that we have experienced before, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, population growth rate slowing. Right. Yes. And that should have a long term effect, I would imagine, on, on overall growth. Correct. I, I yeah this this is uh, this is not data that actually I've, I've I was aware of, uh, and, uh, in terms of population that's that's really interesting uh, information. Um, I I I was going more in terms of what the the current dilemma for a lot of the European countries is to really ask the question of zero uh, per capita growth. You know, like flat growth. Yeah. You know, that this is the flat growth model. That's really kind of uh, being more and more discussed uh, by macroeconomists, and the 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 thing is, to me, it's uh, th- there are environmental uh, constraints that are not yes. necessarily being taken into account in terms of like when you talk about you know um, purely GDP growth. You know, it doesn't incorporate the exhaustion of natural resources and things like this. So, I would say there are limits to growth, like uh, we know. And uh, yeah. and limit to population growth as well. So uh, th- that I I really was not in terms of the model in terms of RYT. Yeah. I really was not questioning those long term trends. I was you know I was interested in what some of the um, uh, ecologists uh, and uh, um, geoscientists geoscientists have been working on in terms of. Uh, energy exchanges uh, in the biosphere, and uh, you know, and and in terms of uh, the, um, the the accretion of energy or the the uh, um, uh, the, the level of entropy, and how how yeah. how it is um, uh, remedied by uh, solar energy, and uh, which maintains the whole the whole thing into a sort of homeostasis. Uh, uh, and and I was looking for uh, you know a kind of a rational for why that value of two percent seems to be kind of uh, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a gold not a golden ratio but kind of a golden percentage which I saw also yeah. in France by the way in France I did the, I ran the same simulations over a hundred years in France and it was one point nine seven percent real return after yeah. taxes I mean I this was a puzzle to me. And uh, I was looking for some sort of biological uh, foundation to this this notion of of uh, productivity, but uh, but you're right. I mean, there are there are currently a lot of displacements, and we're yeah. going to expect more of these. And uh, we right. can't take this uh, long term uh, as this long term value as a constant, like we 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 tended to do in our initial view. So. Uh, another moving piece, but uh, a slower, yeah. slower moving piece, 
and we can uh, uh, we hopefully you know just like uh, the cogs in the wheel we have the big cog the big wheels the smaller wheels um, and we can we can actually try to make the adjustments but uh, yeah yeah it's very very instructive right it's it's uh, it's uh, easy to internalize. Uh, from a from a you know sort of a framework perspective, yeah. it's very elegant, and um, you know now we could ask. Um, so if you looked at a hundred year horizon in yeah. France, yeah. Uh, that horizon covers technology discontinuities too. Um, you know, sort of what we expect yeah. to see right in the future. Yes, that yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, it, it's essentially post uh, uh, second uh, industrial revolution that we're looking at. So most of the technological displacements, well, the big ones, they've taken place. Yeah. Of course, there's the, there's the internet revolution of the 1990s, which by the way, uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, I remember uh, papers and books by uh, William Bomo uh, talking yeah. about the productivity slowdown, you know, in the yeah. 1980s. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and then there's the internet uh, and the computer uh, revolution and the internet revolution. So, um, it, it's it, I, no, no. I get what you, I, I get what you're saying, and uh, the thing is, um, wh where where do we stand in a uh, in a closed uh, closed system like the Earth system? And uh, yeah. I mean, uh, where do we go from there? I mean, uh, is it you know, like uh, uh, Earth ship, uh, <laughs> uh, Earth ship Earth, or uh, what, what, what? Where are we going to go uh, yes. next? So these, <laughs> are, are, these are questions. Economists, I mean, economists like to speculate. You know, they like uh, a little bit of sci-fi, into especially the pure, the the uh, I would say the uh, um, the neoclassical growth economists. They they really like to. Uh, hypothesize that no matter what, uh, we're going to find our way to to higher growth uh, and uh, new uh, technologies that are going to pull us out of uh, this uh, this exhaustion of natural resources. So, but why not? I, yeah, you know. yeah. I, I want to shift gears, Chris, yeah. and uh, talk about a couple of your other papers, um, which I find very interesting. So, one of them is called Connectalism: mm -hmm. a New Paradigm for Human Choice. And you say that this is an introduction to connectalism, a new paradigm for analyzing human choice. <clears throat> connectalism is rooted in systems thinking and humanistic psychology. Mm -hmm. It meets together ancient and modern wisdoms about humans' awareness of their interconnectedness within the networks they belong to, the biosphere. And you put, you put this in the context of what we are going through um, in this pandemic. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about uh, what you mean by connectalism? Okay, yes. Um, so, <clears throat> again, a little bit of uh, history uh, here um, in terms of my personal history. Um, you know, I was born, uh, bred as an economist, a uh, neoclassical economist, uh, and studied general equilibrium theory, which is uh, the holy grail of uh, economics. Um, and uh, essentially, um, when you're nourished in that, that type of uh, milk, you're, you're, you're taking it, you're not uh, being highly uh, critical at first, and you're just taking everything as uh, for granted. Uh, but uh, eventually, uh, my realization was that, um, and like many others, I mean, I'm not the only one to, to say that, obviously, uh, that the, the, the fundamental economic models was lacking something. And, and uh, we know that. We know from the failures of macroeconomic models and from the uh, micro is a little bit different because... Uh, uh, industrial organization, for instance, seems to have been fairly successful, uh, you know, looking at game theory and strategic games and games that corporations play. I, I would say that's probably one of the more successful uh, field in, even though nowadays people are saying, okay, evolutionary uh, game theory, yes, it, it has worked, but uh, it has also some limitations. Anyways. Uh, the yep. point, the point being that uh, one of the fundamental tenets of uh, economics is uh, 
methodological individualism, meaning that uh, we're looking at it making uh, decisions based on its uh, selfish utility in total isolation of anything else around it. Now, yeah. when I say in isolation, that doesn't mean there's no interaction. Of course, there is interaction because there's consumption and there's production. So there is interaction. But the decision yeah. that the individual makes is purely from the standpoint of his own well-being, independently of the well-being of others. So the one of the things that uh, you know I was um, I learned about when I looked at uh, some of the work by uh, Maturana and Varela and the, some of the biologists and some of the systems think thinkers uh, is this notion of interconnection um, right. that no man is an island that we are tributary to the environment. I mean we're we're constantly exchanging uh, energy uh, through our breath uh, intake, through food intake, uh, with, and we're giving and we're taking from the environment all the time. And we also are social animals, so we're, we wouldn't be able to live uh, in complete isolation. So there are those dimensions, which in a way, you know, economists are considering to be kind of annexed. You know, they say, okay, well, if you want to take care of these, you just add another argument in the uh, utility function. Okay, you, oh, you want to care about your neighbor's consumption? Okay, put it in the, put it in your <laughs> utility, and then it all it's all solved. And they're saying, well, yeah. but if you do that, you know, what's the foundation? Why would you want to do that? This is totally ad hoc. And generations yeah. of young economists uh, that have tried to break the mold, they've been criticized by saying, you know, your model is ad, ad hoc. Why are you making this assumption? Just go back to the basic where everybody is being selfish, not that we know that, we're taking as being a fundamental holy truth. And for me, the holy truth was, uh, the holy truth is a biological truth of inter fundamental interconnection. Uh, yeah. And I, would, I, would, I started thinking, well, if we take this as a fundamental truth, then my decisions, okay, uh, depend on my awareness of that truth. Right. And so I would say that if we look at some somebody like, and it's a perfect case for me, uh, somebody like Trump, and of course you're in the yeah. US, so I have no risk telling you that being in France. <laughs> I, hope <laughs> I, hope you're, I hope you're going to escape from the censorship, but uh, you... Uh, you see somebody who's really uh, uh, centered on himself, his uh, very close family, and the interests of his family. And uh, I would say to the expense probably of uh, everyone else around. Uh, and we, may dis we may agree, we may disagree. That's a little bit what I, my interpretation yeah, yeah. of what's happening. Uh, and I would say that in that vision, what, you, what you, we have here is we have an individual who behaves like homo, homo economicus, who's maximizing selfish utility in, and not being aware of uh, his interconnection with the greater uh, rest of society, and especially given his role as uh, uh, the all-powerful man that he is. Uh, uh, so that's a very interesting um, um, example of somebody who doesn't seem to have that awareness or refuses mm -hmm. to have that awareness or what it, for whatever you know reason, psychological or other, and makes decisions but, but you, based on that narrow yeah. standpoint. Yeah, but do you believe, Chris, that if you if you look at the population in general, yeah. Uh, do you believe there is an understanding of that network effect? For example, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, yeah. the natural thing to to expect, you know, um, fifty thousand years ago, um, you know, essentially clan based, yeah. uh, small groups, they they killed other clans, uh, you know, tried to kill off the other clans, and uh, there is enough evidence, you know, Homo sapiens coming out of Africa basically killed off Neanderthals and Denisovans. Yeah. So Homo sapiens, if, if you look at their history, uh, has been truly like that. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, I sometimes wonder, do we have any data in the current context to say 
yes, that the modern society is any different? Well, the only data we have is really from anthropologists and ethnologists and, uh, you know, people who go and uh, go study uh, particular tribes in the northern part of the American continent or some of the islanders or, and they're reporting on their understanding of their connection with, the, with nature and with each other. Yeah. Now, yes, the big question is, how much of that uh, can be uh, transposed to modern societies and Western societies and our modes of living and interaction? And, uh, or does it scale? Yeah. And, and, more, uh, more generally, does exactly. it scale? Exactly. Right? Does it scale up? Yeah. Um, well, that, I don't have the answer to that question. What I would say is that it's probably not as clear-cut as something some people think where they say, well, you know, it's obvious that I don't want to be going to back to living in the jungle with a spear and, uh, you know, and, and wearing, uh, you know, uh, fur from an animal uh, and live by the fire. Uh, and, and that's, I think, where the perception of most Westerner lies when, we, when we're saying, okay, these guys, they have a different understanding of their connection to nature, but they're being judged. We, we judge them on their, uh, the appearance of their, you know, comfort of living and uh, no technology or low technology or whatever. And, and we dismiss, therefore, their uh, cultural knowledge based on, 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 you know, this assessment of, of uh, um, you know, lower Tech, lower state of technology or, or um, primitive technology. And, and I think that's where the mistake is because there are certainly yeah. are lessons that these people have that uh, we need right now in terms of right. Uh, right. our um, handling of the uh, ecological right. transition. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I think those people are going to do very well. <laughs> <laughs> if mm -hmm. we are, you know, if we head to uh, two uh, degrees Celsius uh, uh, higher temperature by uh, in the next uh, 30 years or so, these guys are going to do much better than us. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a model that we can learn from. Yes. Um, but but I think the necessary requirements there would be set of characteristics yes. that the members of modern society um, have to have, right? So your, your other paper uh, is sort of in the same vein. So it's entitled Applying Mindfulness and Compassion yeah. in Finance. Yeah. You are truly an optimist, Chris, I have to say. This. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you say, I inquire into the efficacy of adopting two mental aptitudes in the financial industry, mindfulness and compassion. Yeah. I define the noble aim of finance as channeling resources into the most deserving social uh, or economic activities and raising community and societal welfare as a result. When I look around, though, Chris, I, I see no, um, no <laughs> sign of this, um, you know, uh, so, so I can, yes. you know, I can look, look at C-level uh, execs of large companies, financial institutions, and I have seen them in giving uh, congressional testimony. I have seen them on TV after dinner uh, talking about how distressed they are uh, watching, you know, sort of financial, you know, the, the wealth disparity in society that they believe is not sustainable. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, they're spending most of their time trying to set up their balance sheets for the upcoming bailout, uh, which is really a, a direct transfer from the marginal taxpayer to the shareholders of large companies. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I'm a bit of a pessimist on this dimension, uh, yes. but I, I think this is an aspirational goal, right? It's a very aspirational goal, but at the same time, I think it resonates with a lot of the uh, the um, the investors' um, appetites these days. I mean, maybe it's going to come from the millennials, uh, or it's going to come from the, the this generation, uh, which is asking, you know, be uh, you know, to be accountable, you know, uh, when 
you propose uh, when, when you're a financial advisor or you're uh, ultra high net worth uh, uh, family uh, fund advisor or you know and you and they're asking you what do you what, what products are you proposing to me that are you know that you can guarantee me uh, are going to be uh, uh, you know accountable for uh, being uh, socially responsible and uh, environmentally friendly and all this I mean, they, these guys are, this generation, there's a generation now of uh, uh, 35 uh, years old and less uh, that are coming up and they're asking the tough questions from the, fina- from the finance, financial advisors. Um, yeah. And yeah. I'm not saying that the, the industry is really genuinely wanting to follow these guys. I mean, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're really uh, going there kicking and screaming. I, I, I really see that, but they're, they have no choice. I mean, they're going to have to make the, they're going to have to take the turn, you know, and, uh, and, um, and, uh, and, pro- and, and start offering genuine uh, products. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, wor- I'm working oh, with a, just to, just to let you know, yeah. I'm, I'm working not that closely, but uh, with a, um, a, uh, an, an organization in uh, Asia, um, yeah. uh, which is uh, specializing in uh, rating um, um, large financial institutions according to their uh, their social um, oh. impact and uh, yeah. their their philosophy of investing, uh, and uh, um, and and we got big big groups. You know, we got like. Uh, uh, the, the BN, BNP, we got, uh, you know, the, 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 you know, large, large banks, very international groups that are uh, occupying the space in, uh, you know, Southeast Asia and uh, some of those, some of those countries. And uh, they are competing for these awards. And the thing is, uh, I've seen some of those guys, what they're trying to do to avoid <laughs> Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. to to pass the bar, but really to do it in a minimalistic way, you know, I mean, uh, so, yes, they, they want to they want to uh, get into that space because it's a it's a marketing space uh, that is, mm-hmm. that is uh, virgin, uh, but they, they're not necessarily making the all the right efforts to to uh to do the right due diligence to offer the 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 the, the products the right products yeah that's clear but yeah. the bar is getting set higher and higher year after year after year they're getting called on this they're year after year they're getting called on it and either they're going to do it or they're not going to do it but if they don't do it uh, there's going to be some, uh, uh, you know, clients are going to are going to leave them and go to the the people who are more accountable. I mean, uh, the, the outfits that that are more uh, accountable. I, I truly believe that. So, um, <clears throat> I think it's mostly demand driven, even though it's really a small part of the global assets uh, invest invest investment, but. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, I, I, it's it's going to get there. It's a, it's a process. Yeah. So we have to start somewhere. Yeah. I want to quickly touch on RYT again one more time. Yeah. So what is your, let's call it speculation? Um, we, we have the market basically come back and exceed where it was uh, even before the pandemic. Correct. Uh, so how do you how do you explain this from an RYT perspective? Okay, so RYT is clear on this. There is no way these prices are justified by valuation. Uh, earnings expectations are down uh, for ne- for next year. Um, the uh, um, the growth is down. Um, the the prospects are are down um and even accounting for a productivity slowdown which i did in the model i mean the the valuation is uh and last time i did it was quite a while ago but 
probably in May, it was about 25 to 30% too high, okay? So valuation was just uh, um, in, in a bubble, in bubble range, okay? Uh, yeah. So my, my fundamental explanation of this is this. Um, there is, um, uh, if we think about optimists and pessimists on the market, right? Uh, yeah. who's, wh wh who are driving, who's driving the market right now? I would say uh, the, the people are in a, in a bubble mentality. They're trying to uh, push the price, push the price up or keep the prices up. And there is this notion of um, we have uncertainty and we have two roads. Mm -hmm. The roads is uh, full recovery really quickly yeah. or um, more of the pandemic and a, uh, 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 another round of uh, economic hurt uh, yeah. in, in, in September. And uh, the hopes also high are high for intervention of the Federal Reserve in some mm -hmm. capacity, or even uh, Congress uh, to reallocate, you know, uh, some more some more money, uh, you know, with after the July thirty first uh, deadline, uh, where some of the, um, um, the, the 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 entitlement or whatever it's called the uh, Unem unemployment yeah, yeah unemployment. Um, is is going to run out. Uh, right. But maybe it's going to be another round. I mean, I think people are uh, trying to hope for uh, a, an intervention from from the government in one way or another to rescue the economy, and that's why I think the valuations are uh, stay remaining as high. Uh, but but me yeah. mechanistically, though, mechanistically, though, uh, Chris, can the government? and the Fed in, in combination create growth in the economy? No, no, that's, that's just, a, that's, that, that is com a complete mirage. Uh, yeah. So I, I totally, uh, I think that, I, I think what, I think the, I saw, and maybe I'm, I did not know about this, but uh, I've seen a couple of articles talking about the Fed uh, eventually wanting to uh, be buying stocks which would be a huge, <laughs> huge mistake. And well, I, also, yes. I also think that I saw that Japan had tried that. And, mm -hmm. and of course, uh, you open the door to all the speculators who are going to you know, catch, catch the government, their pants down, because when the government decides to stop throwing money in the market, then you get all these people who are taking short positions because they know it's going to go back to right. fundamentals. And they're going to make okay. huge amounts of money. So to me, it's just delaying the inevitable. And the inevitable is that uh, given the state of the, uh, the way the government is running uh, this uh, uh, response to the pandemic right now, which is extremely disorganized and, uh, and, and, and also doesn't provide any sort of uh, relief for uh, corporations or essentially th th there's no clear um, uh, possibility to plan uh, for right. any sort of investments, then what right. you have is fundamental uncertainty. And when you have fundamental uncertainty, people can uh, stay on the, on the, on the side uh, for a while, but then they make a decision. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a critical thing. You know, people don't like to remain in uncertainty, and I think it's uh, in there's a bias in uh, in uh, behavioral psychology called uh, ambiguity aversion. Uh, <laughs> you don't like to remain there, and and so in in effect, what happens is that you take an action just to get out of there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. And I think people are going to be they're going to take an action, and the action is going to be probably to sell a, a huge sell-off in September and October. I don't see any other possible outcome uh, for the American economy, at least, and the market. Yeah, yeah. This has been, uh, this has been great, uh, Chris. Uh, thanks so much for spending time with me. Gil, this and, has uh, been a, an absolute pleasure uh, for me as well. 
and uh, very, uh, I, I appreciated the, the depth of the conversation. Obviously, you know, it, it's a pleasure to talk about one's uh, stuff, you know, <laughs> that, <laughs> that the things where, you know, somebody's been working on uh, the, their babies and stuff. So that's, that's really, uh, of course, uh, but I appreciated your uh, intellectual curiosity and, uh, and where, you, where you took me in this conversation. So thank you very much. Great. Thanks so much, Chris. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.